This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So good morning to some of you and, and good afternoon to some of you. Um, the title of my talk today is Mind Travels and um, I was thinking of a subtitle of it and what came to me, although I'm, I'm, I'm sort of holding off with it, but I'll share it with you is the um, tortured journeys of practice. The, um, the late Wayne Labou, um, a priest with Crooked River and a Dharma brother used to say that I would, had a penchant towards the mechanical and um, Maybe he's right, uh, the how things work. And um, so I dedicate this uh, talk to Wayne. I'd like to start off, um, a a book arrived at my doorstep the other day, and um, it's called The Way of Tenderness. And it's one of the books that is being used by the uh, Bamboo and the Wind Sangha, led by Val Zemansky and Cupertino for the fall practice period. And the, the title of the book is The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. And I'll just read a little bit from the foreword by um, Charles Johnson, who's a Buddhist writer, scholar. He's quoting Pao Chi from the non-duality of Buddhahood and ordinary life. Ordinary life and Buddhahood have no distinction. Great knowledge is not different from ignorance. Why should one seek outwardly for a treasure when the field of the body has its own bright jewel? And a little bit from Johnson. Early in this thought-provoking book, Zinju Earthland Manuel informs her readers that the way of tenderness is not Buddhist, not a religion, not behavior, modification, not a philosophy of life or a conceptual view of life. It is not a static path. You will not comprehend this way without laying bare your human conditioning. You will not comprehend it by intellect alone. So the, the seed of this talk actually goes back to the um, Denkawe Sashin in 2016 at Jokoji. And for those of you who were there, you might remember that in the afternoons, um, we, were, we were given a treat, if you will. Um, groups of us would meet with Jero and Vanya Palmers, and Jero would lead us in tea ceremony, and Vanya would um, entertain questions and and our musings. And very quickly in the conversation part of it, um, it's just like like Zoom, we, excuse the pun, uh, we were out at the edge of uh, the universe. From the little Zendo um, and Jokoji out to the edge of the universe. And I've done some, you know, fairly reliable online sources, I think, uh, that say that it is like 46.5 billion light years 
uh, from Earth, the edge of the universe is. Or something like 225 trillion of our years. It's there. And it was pretty amazing as I was sitting there. And, and then just like that, um, the mind went back um, about 1,100, 1,200 years to an argument between two monks. And according to this story as told in the koan, not the wind, not the flag, two monks are arguing about the temple flag waving in the wind. One says the flag moves. The other says the wind moves. This went on for some time, neither willing to cede ground to the other. At some point, Huey Ning comes along and here's the argument. And he says, gentlemen, it is not the wind that moves. It's not the flag that moves. It is your mind that moves. Upon hearing this, according to the koan, the two monks were struck with awe. So I will be discussing two aspects of mind today, the, that which moves and is, is entangled with narratives and our emotional patterns, and that which does not, and share my exploration into, the, into them. So when I first, you know, for years in this practice, I would, you know, the, the instructions uh, to Zazen were, you know, face the wall. When thoughts arise, let go of them. And um, that wasn't my experience for many years in Zazen. It's just simply letting go. Um, first, there is this, there's this skepticism about letting go. Um, according to, you know, Yogacara with the eight consciousnesses, the sixth consciousness, uh, mano vinyana, mind. It's two what it does has two jobs. It basically um, names and labels, says this is that, and this is that. And it also is busy picking and choosing what it's gonna pay attention to. So what I, what I wondered for a long time was in simply letting go or reinforcing that, excuse me, that dynamic with the, um, the sixth mind, the sixth consciousness. And it also seemed the, um, I always wondered about other people as they're sitting on their cushions. Was it that simple just to see your mind See the thoughts coming and letting go. For me, it was a completely different experience. It was quite like you know, sometimes riding a wild horse or sometimes like sitting in strong gale winds being tossed all over the place. So what I decided to do was to um, go back, um, you know, to delve further into the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. I started hanging out with insight, Vipassana people.
And I, I read something recently where, um, you know, somebody, um, a, an author put it this way. She said, the early teachings take us into the shallow end of the pool. And the, um, the Zen just simply drops us into the deep end. So I guess what I had decided to do was to start back at the shallow end after years of sort of floundering around in the deep end. Also in this time, what was rattling around they had, I keep coming back to Dogen, the Genjo Koan. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. So I was stuck on this, this forgetting the self. How does that work? Is it just simply a matter of letting go of thoughts? And he goes on to say, to forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the body and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. If you see there, he's actually starting at the shallow end and going deeper. Although for Dogen, um, shallow and deep are pretty much the same thing. And there's really actually no shallow or deep. So during this time, I've had, um, you know, the teachings that I, you know, that come from insight meditation, from, um, from what I've dipped into in terms of the um, Pali Canon. There's been this resonance with Zen teaching. Uh, one reflecting off the other and back and forth. And there's also really been a strong resonance with what I've in my own, uh, in, in my practice as a therapist. And in my work in uh, delving more and more into trauma therapy and really understanding how the being works, what's at play. Really understanding that, you know, in, 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 Dogen's, in Dogen's sense, there is, um, you know, body-mind is the whole, as, as Katagiri would say, it's the whole ball of wax. And so what's at play uh, when we're sitting and in life? Very simply, we're, we're, we're encountering... Um, primarily our conditioned response to, um, to uh, situations, to experience, which basically sums up the Satipatthana. What is our conditioned response to experience? And then fully understanding the extent of that conditioned response, that it's just not what's coming out of the brain. It's just not our thoughts. That it also entails the autonomic nervous system which reads experience first, that's the first read. And then that information gets transmitted, whatever, whatever that read is from the autonomic nervous system, it gets 
transmitted up into the brain. Uh, just very quickly, it's sort of like the left brain, left brain, right di brain dynamic. And the left brain is um, really resistant to um, allowing anything that doesn't already fix, uh, fit within its preconceived framework. And the so-called right brain or right hemisphere, basically it's, it's where our emotions are, our feelings, um, it's where our trauma is stored. And it sets up a very basic pattern in of what's coming through. And I began to realize that, you know, the experience that I was having on the cushion was very visceral dynamics from a lot of my past. And that what was, you know, and, 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 the, and the, what it was actually doing in terms, of, I think, some, you know, one of the um, pitfalls in practices, in our practice, is that we, um, we focus too much on the head. And we get caught up in our head. And from my experience, it, um, there's sort of this bouncing back and forth, the self at war with itself. What was coming up from, you know, just very basic conditioned responses to experience up into the brain, which was trying to read it within, within its narrow framework. And which kept saying, you know, basically saying, you shouldn't be here by now. You should be gone. You should be done with this. And all I should be able to do is let go of you and it'll be gone. So as I came back into the body, um, you know, things started to shift. And I'd like to share some of that experience with you, uh, you know, the, share some things that I've come across um, over the last few years. And so to help us maybe help you, um, if your experience is like mine, um, to appreciate what's happening and how to dance with it, a different way of dancing, and to come to a different sense of letting go and I th for me, the sense is, um, I keep coming back to a sense of Dogen's thinking, not thinking. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, when you get into the fourth foundations, you're really getting into the, um, the finer breakdowns of our, how our system works. And we see um, basically um, five patterns of reactivity and these are called the hindrances. Sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. And you can also, when, when, when you're practicing in the hindrances, you know, there's, there's, there's some, some of these basic movements of the mind that you can spot too. Because we're actually noticing, we're paying attention to the movement of the mind, not the content of the mind. So one movement of the mind goes back to the sixth sense consciousness, the mano-vijnana. That which is naming and picking and choosing. That's one movement of the mind. 
Another movement of the mind is the monkey mind, which we talk about a lot. The bouncing from here to there. And then there's another movement of the mind, I call that the spin cycle. Where we keep spinning things over and over and over. And another movement of the mind is when we just simply drop down the rabbit hole. We get lost in a thought, in a train of thought. It's like the experience, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but be driving on the road and all of a sudden you look up and you wonder where the last 10 or 15 miles went. There's no memory of it. And then there's yet another um, movement of the mind or thought pattern. And it's simply the thoughts that float through that have no charge to them. We can see them and they move on. But these other thought patterns have, have some charge to them, have some strength to them. So early on in, in, some, in some work I was doing in mindfulness, I kept hearing of this acronym RAIN, and it was helpful. I'll share it with you. It's simply R is, the, is recognizing what is happening. And A is allowing it. And I've heard three I's for I. One is investigation, inquiry, and another one is intimacy. So we can sort of wrap those three together into intimate inquiry and investigation, getting really close. Which the first two uh, steps help us do, no pushing away. And then in is non-identification. Noticing when we're making it us or me or mine. In his book, Unhindered, uh, Gil Franzdahl, who's just down the hill from you all out there in California in Redwood City. In his book, Unhindered, he offers this uh, acronym setup and it's called BELLA, B-E-L-L-A. B, examination, lesson, letting go, and appreciation. B is to let it be. I'll be quoting here just directly from him. This does not mean giving into it or intentionally participating with the thinking it may involve. Rather, it means not acting on it or reacting to it. It involves the useful training and staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. There is no need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability and equanimity in the face of destabilizing forces. That kind of language resonates with me. And then examination. Overcoming the hindrances requires us to understand them well, becoming intimate with them. If we know all the guises and tricks, we are less likely to be tricked by them. The Buddha taught a number of areas to explore when investigating a hindrance. The different aspects of the hindrance itself, the conditions that cause the arising and passing of the hindrance, and the experience of not having the hindrance, which echoes the Satipatthana Sutta, which, which is a constant refrain in there. Notice when this is there, and notice when it's not. 
That's, when that's where we really learn from this. It begins to sink into the being, noticing when it's not, what that's like. Then recognizing the components, the physical aspects of it. How does, how does the hindrance feel in the body? Noticing that. The energetic and the emotional. What are the emotional thought, or what are the emotional patterns associated with the hindrance? Is there fear? Anxiety, noticing all that, even joy. Then there are the um, cognitive and motivational aspects. The cognitive aspects, what are the narratives? Our narratives almost always, almost always, are reinforcing some sense of self. They do that. They're very subtle in doing that. All our, our thought patterns, our thinking, when we get in these thinking patterns and we get trapped in them, we're getting trapped in some type of perpetuation of me. And then um, one of my students one day, when, you know, after we started working with this book, she said, as she was working with a hindrance, she asked herself, what am I getting out of this? What keeps me coming back to it? And then L, the first L is lesson, lesson its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are often good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power may require moving ourselves from situations that reinforce it, where it may be useful to direct one's attention to something that is, has a calming effect. In the trauma therapy training, I've come across um, words or terms such as a grounding. How do you ground yourself? Just the feeling, a sense of being seated, your feet on the floor. Do you feel safe and secure? And or resourcing. Bringing to mind, for instance, something that brings you a sense of unconditional love, acceptance, and safety, if that's possible for you. And then we come to the second L, my favorite, letting go. Once a hindrance is understood well enough, it can be appropriate to let go of it. Sometimes this can be accomplished by letting go of the pressure propelling the hindrance. Notice again, bringing attention to the physical aspects of the hindrance. It may involve letting go of the thinking that perpetuates the hindrance. It might require letting go of attachments to the self-identity, what is behind this, what am I getting out of this behind the hindrances. This ability to let go of the hindrances grows with practice. As mindfulness strengthens, a time comes when mindfulness becomes stronger from the force of the, becomes stronger than the force of the hindrances. The same is true of the ability to let go. Letting go is like a muscle that can become stronger. The stronger the muscle of letting go, the easier it is to leave a hindrance behind. And we come to appreciate, which circles back around to an earlier point. Unhooking from the hindrances is nurtured by appreciating their absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by the hindrance is a joy. The relief that arises when the mind is free of the hindrance is a delight. If you feel the sense of well-being, you, you will know a type of pleasure better than sense pleasures. 
better than the energy of ill will. The mind will naturally want more freedom rather than losing freedom to the hindrance. And those of you with familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta will recognize here in Bella the seven enlightening factors. Mindfulness, investigation of mental objects, energy, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. I just want to reiterate a few points here that Franzdahl makes. Not acting on the thinking or reacting to it. Staying present with our experience without being in conflict with it. Noticing the conditions that give rise and what leads to the cessation of the hindrance. Recognizing, not thinking, not analyzing. Attuning to the body, the somatic experience and the movement of the mind, the energy and power and movement of hindrances as destabilizing forces, lessening the intensity of strong bouts with hindrances, not being hijacked by them. This sense came to me, and it still does from time to time, the, of standing in waist deep in, at the side of the ocean and the water as the waves come in one after another. You're, waves come in, they lift you and they set you back down. They lift you and set you back down. And then out of the blue, it'll become a big wave crashing into you turning you upside way, turning you every which way but loose. And what I've come to discover in these experiences is as this sense of um, working with the hindrances, the sense of learning to be present with them, developing that presence and developing the power of letting go um, something begins to happen. There, it, it happens, starts with mindfulness. And the space begins to open up. Remember, in of not, remember the end of rain, non-identification. It's just remembering that this is a conditioned something coming through. That's all it is, just a conditioned something. It may be scary, it may be uh, it's really uncomfortable, maybe waves of pain, but it's a condition of something. And then in a moment you find yourself standing back with both feet on the ground. It's moved through and you've lived, you've lived through it. And every time that that happens, it still happens. But every time it happens, there's this growing sense of confidence. Of, ah, oh, yeah, this is it. All I have to do is stay present, be with it, watch it. the less that I'm hijacked by it, there's more ability then to really start to see in for insight to take hold. To not only see, but to begin to be open to the experience of the three marks of existence. Impermanence, suffering, 
and not self. Remembering that the suffering or suffering basically that really, really causes us pain is, is our conditioned reaction to experience. It's how we relate to our experience. And so in this process, the, uh, the relationship to this experience begins to shift. In a book I've started working with with uh, my groups, this is called the, in the, in the, Experience, or the Experience of Samadhi by Richard Shankman. And he says that um, to begin to experience, you know, to really begin to develop the jhana's concentration, we really need to work with the hindrance and working with the hindrances and working with the seven awakening factors as antidotes. So this is what Franz Dahl sets forth in this book. And again, repeating this, this the sense of that muscle and confidence in the process. Just noticing the reflect, you know, for me, the more, the more that um, this experience is realized and this reflecting back and forth of, um, you know, even, even the experience that's now part of the body now part of the system. It's, it's stored in there. It becomes part of the working memory. Reflecting back on the current experience and noticing, and noticing the dynamics of the shift. And for me, that's really a, a, a strong experiential, um, strong experience of the uh, dependent origination, really seeing what the causes and conditions giving a rise to what causes and conditions give rise to our suffering, to our hindrances. And noticing what causes and conditions when, when awareness, awareness is brought to it. Beginning to trust that awareness. There's power in the awareness. That's, we really learn to trust it. We, it's not the thinking. It's not the arguing with. It's not the, I should be different. It's not that you should be different. That's not going to do it for us. It's simply being present and, and developing that muscle of letting go, developing that power of awareness, and letting, letting it do what it does. Coming back to Wu Min's commentary, it is not the wind that moves. It is not the flag that moves. It is not the mind that moves. How do you see the ancestral teacher here? If you can view this matter intimately, you will find that the two monks received gold when they were buying iron. The ancestral teacher could not repress his compassion and overspent himself. I think I think Huey Ning simply just saw where these two people, these two monks were, and he decided, yeah, let's, let's go back to the shallow end.
Wu Min's poem in response to the case, wind, flag, mind, move, all the same fallacy. Only knowing how to open their mouths. Only, how, only knowing how to stay stuck in their narratives and their old patterns. Not knowing they had fallen into chatter down the rabbit hole. You know, the, one, of the bit, one of the beauties of working with uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, and this is different from what I call the drugstore magazine rack mindfulness, is really the seeing, you know, being able to see all the moving parts. We come back to the mechanics of it. And when you see all the moving parts, you see that there's, um, it's just happening stuff coming in through the sense gates, and this is what the mind does. And this is the stories that the mind makes up about this experience. It's just happening. It just does. That's the way we human beings function. It's beginning to see when we're enmeshed with this experience, when we're tied into it. Many, many years ago at Udambara, Dean gave a talk about um, the, train of, as the train of emotions coming through. And usually what happens is when we, when we wake up to the experience, we've already reached up and grabbed a hold of that train and are being shaken all over the place. And so as awareness begins to develop, we can, we can let go, we can see to let go. And then eventually we can start hearing things, you know, we can hear the vibrations of the train miles away. But in my experience every so once in a while, when I wake up, my hand's on the train. And I understand why, how I got there. Okay. There's no judgment. It's just understanding. And from that sense, compassion arises because beginning to understand um, everyone else's, that this is true for everyone else. I want to end here with a passage from uh, the Pali Canon from the Buddha. And Stephen, Stephen Batchelor mentions it in his book After Buddhism. And he takes this discourse with somebody named Kachanagota, and it's not known who that person is, as my prayer, primary canonical source on complete view. The Buddha, in my sentiment as I read this, who's the source of the early teachings, the shallow to the deep, with this, with this passage, I think, takes us right out in the middle of the open, out in the middle of the ocean and drops us. By and large, Kachana, this world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete understanding has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete understanding has no sense of it is about the world.
this duality of it is and it is not. The very basic movements of the objectifying mind, the coming back to the sixth sense consciousness, mano-vijnana. Asserting here, asserting self and other, the movement that reinforces the stubborn resistance of fixed views. Starting with the fixed views of it is or it isn't, I am, I am not, this is that, or it is not, and on and on. When I read that passages to, to, to my groups, I like to watch their reactions. I like to watch their minds, their, their thoughts start getting tangled in thoughts. And that's okay. I encourage them, I encourage them to do that. I don't encourage them to come back to the breath. I encourage them to watch. To see what the mind does, to see all the narratives, to be fully alive to this energy of the mind, to get tangled up in knots and then to begin to wear itself up out. Go into it fully, just see what it does. And then maybe there will be this unhooking, unhooking from it. Unhooking into not knowing, into the don't know mind. I often talk to uh, my students and to my clients about potentiality. I say that we're in multiple states of gestation at all times. Each human being is. We're in multiple states of potential, of becoming. It's our habitual uh, mind, our habitual views, fixed thinking, our trapped ways of being that really keep us from realizing that. And when we, when we start to unhook from it is, it is not dynamic, we begin to notice that we, um, all, of the, all of these structures of self that the thinking works so hard to perpetuate, begins to, they begin to fall away. It just becomes this openness, this sense of openness, freedom, joy, delight. So I uh, really, I really, I'm happy to be here today. I, I, it's a joy. It's a joy to be able to sort of look in the Zendo and see some of the folks there and, and, and remember being there. Um, it's, I have a lot of gratitude for you all. Thank you all very much. And if you have questions, um, it'll be fine. Yes.
Sorry about the echo there. I, I thank you so much for your talk. Um, I, I have a question. Um, you didn't talk too much about trauma in your talk, more about um, working with the hindrances and, um, you know, uh, disengaging from the narratives that uh, are causal, causally linked to these hindrances. And um, I have um, particular interest in this um, trauma and, uh, and you had um, promised to talk a little bit about this in the description of your talk is that how practice um, works with trauma. And um, my koan in this is that I often see people come to practice with trauma and then they actually have bad interactions in their sanghas and then they have another trauma. And then it, I think it's healthy for people with that to maybe remove themselves from that sangha for a period. But I think people often get caught in this negative narrative around their sangha and, and they're not able to disengage. And then their practice falls apart. And also it hurts the health of the sangha itself. And then there's the issue of, you know, why is this trauma happening? And, you know, often I, because I'm a woman, perhaps, I find that these traumatized people are women. And, um, and then, so there's an issue of patriarchy that needs to be addressed. And um, I know it's a big, big question to ask you, but do you have any idea about how to address this kind of trauma and, um, and work with it within a Sangha? Mm -hmm. let's see if, let's see let's thank you let's see if this helps um, one is I think uh, very you know coming back to Bella Bella it, it really mirrors a lot of what I'm coming to understand about trauma therapy not not delving into the narrative so much because the narrative reinforces uh, just simply talking about trauma reinforces it and, um, and then the whole process of um, leaning into the trauma, and that's there, you know, that, that should be done with uh, understanding and care. Because there's a titrating, um, a back and forth leaning into dynamic and, and, and starting to lean into that trauma that's in us um, and being and being, being really aware to, uh, of how it should be, uh, um, when, when we need to break, when we need to pull back, when we need to take a breath. I really, uh, I, I, um, I really think there needs, in sanghas, there needs to be more understanding of trauma. I totally agree. Um, I think this understanding, um, I, you know, the, the thinking that a person should pull back from the Sangha, um, that doesn't, that, that sort of, that, I think that puts, it can create uh, or re reinforce the sense, well, I failed again. 
It reinforces the shame, blame, and guilt, which are all extra, but very powerful. So I think if a Sangha has, I think really Sanghas should take it upon themselves to know um, and be able to help people, you know, recognize trauma and then maybe adjust practice patterns and seeing what can be shaped around the trauma. Um, you know, because my own experience, Zazen uh, was re-traumatizing. Just sitting. The pain would activate old, old stuff. And, and, um, and so it was re-traumatizing. You know, rethinking about how much we ask, you know, when there's trauma, how much we ask people to sit. You know, re, you know, and and checking in with them and understanding um, this, you know, how how it's, it's just it's just happening. It's just coming up from their being. You know, and um, and it's it's not by choice, and it's not that they're they're failing to do what they need to do, because this has such tremendous power. So beginning to, you know, and there's some books out there. Um, I really highly recommend uh, Polyvagal Theory and Therapy. It's very simple and approachable. And that's by Deb Dana. Deb Dana and she has some um, accompanying, uh, accompanying book about exercises to do. And I'm going to, you know, I, I meet with once a month with a group of domestic violence offenders. And now we're using that book with them because I mean, trauma is there in them. And, and so, but being very, very gentle, very con- and, and aware and considerate about trauma in the community and how the community needs to be informed and educated about it so it can better respond. Okay. Um, in, in, in my old Sangha, you know, it was, I, I shudder when I look back on it because there was this, you know, there, there was a sense of dolphin pod. And when somebody was having trouble, this dolphin pod was supposed to respond. Well, a lot of these people in the dolphin pond were, a dolphin pod weren't trained. And um, it makes me shudder now to think of it. And there was always this sense that... Um, that there, you know, it, it, I don't think it was intentional, but there's a sense that there was, you know, the, the, the trauma was, you know, pathologized to the extent that it became a character something. Be very careful about that. Understanding the nature of our suffering and how it is, and how deep. And, re- and remembering this, you know, the, the large majority of people have suffered trauma at one time or another. And that percentage gets really high for people of color. Another book I would highly recommend is My Grandmother's Hands. I'm reading that one right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Does that help? Yes. Thank you so much. Chuck, I... There, uh, the, uh, you addressed most of what Connie asked for, but there was one part of it uh, about hierarchy and patriarchy that uh, often inhibits 
the examination or the um, trauma that it is present just because of the systemic structure that's there. So how do you look at that part of uh, disassembling uh, people's trauma from themselves? That the structure of our Sangha, the structure of ha has an influence in how we can deal with people's trauma. I come back to awareness, being really aware, becoming really attuned to uh, systemic structures of racism and trauma. Um, in a, you know, from what I'm from what I'm seeing in the direction of Jacoji, and I'm hearing from other uh, communities. There's a great effort to do that. It takes, it takes education, educating ourselves to understand um, how trauma works, what traumatizes. Um, to really understand that, you know, I, you know being a white male and, and, and really, really, really going into um, the sense of privilege uh, power and being aware how, how that registers with others. And I think our practice, if we're really genuine about our practice, that's inherent in it. It's, it, it attunes us, our practice attunes us to how things are. It attunes us to the way things are and how we are out of sync with it. We become very alive to that. Um, so educating, you know, taking time to educate yourself, the Sangha, um, to create, I think, safe places of discussion for people to share, to really, you know, give thought about that, um, what that looks like. You know, your communication process, you know, investigating your communication, how we talk. Looking seriously at, at expanding your tool chest, so to speak, bringing in, um, you know, bringing in um, nonviolent communication. Or there, and there are a lot of good books out there on mindful communication and Zen communication. Really making that effort, really working to attune, to tune, attune this instrument, letting, letting this practice do that. And I think when we're not, you know, when, you know, in this process that I've been into over the last so many years, it really helps with that. I don't get it right sometimes. Um, but, you know, and, and, really, and, and really beginning to examine the structure, how we structure our communities. Yeah, that's that's a long job uh, restructuring communities because you know it takes introspection by the community and the communities are dynamic as well, shifting people and and uh, strong interests. But um, yeah, keeping it uh, how to how to be open to all kinds of diversity um, is and in thinking and being and and the structures we have. Uh, is probably real helpful. 
And we're experimenting with some of that up here in Jacoby. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. I wanted to thank you for your uh, talk. It was very concise and clear. Um, I also wanted to expand on one idea you had on the spin cycle of um, meditation. And I wanted to throw in some socks into that. Because you always lose some socks in every spin cycle. And you always lose some thoughts during every meditation. So that might be useful. Yeah, some 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 of them just wear themselves out. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Chuck. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, we're kind of in a time now where the culture is uh, encouraging increasing levels of identity. And yet our practice is about non-self, is about selflessness, but our culture and many of the kind of social and political movements are about increasing the identification that you have with multitudes of identities, layers, like you know, and I, I was wondering, I, I've characterized it, I've characterized identity as made of grievances. Ah. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think there's a, you know, I come back to uh, trauma, for one thing. Um, the degree to which our culture is traumatized and um, and the degree of manipulation to keep that going. Uh, I think it's a very willful act full of deep intention to keep us that way. Um, so you're coming to something that I wrestle with a lot as, as I post on Facebook. <laughs> um, and it comes from this sense. It comes from the, the, this, this, really, this really strong sense of dependent origination, causes and conditions. And really, um, really coming into a strong sense of competence and faith in our practice now entering our expression, each one of our expressions, deepening that expression, each one. And um, that becoming part of the causes and conditions. Okay. And this is sort of the angle I've been taking, you know, this, the, 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 where, where my answers today have been coming from. Really, really taking on this seriously our practice and, and realizing the extent that can be realized in this practice. And 
Um, and just, you know, just, you know, just the faith that, you know, the more of us who are out there with this intent, very simply, you know, um, being alive to all the causes and conditions coming up as they're, as they're coming through and then being very careful about what goes on. Noticing the unwholesome, being very in, intentional about, you know, with effort to, towards the wholesome. So we start with ourselves. We start in community. And really about how we, you know, that expression, that expression is, you know, how can we bring that expression into the discourse, the public discourse? That's why I'm really interested in that. Because for me, you know, just sitting on the cushion uh, is not doing it. It's what's, what's what is what this is in the world? Yeah, I just had a question. I mean, with your emphasis on trauma, there's a pitfall. I mean, we all have trauma in our childhood and, and identifying with that, just where does that go? Where does that, I mean, it just leads us back down a rabbit hole. Um, how do we get, past, you know, I think it just reinforces a sense of self as distinct from everyone else, um, everything else. And we can't fix it. We can... I don't know how do we move past it and just, you know, to, to lessen the self-centeredness, so to speak. Um, I mean, just living life is, is trauma. Living life in any society at any time is trauma. I mean, you know, I'm afraid of just getting caught up in all that old, old, old garbage, so to speak, old baggage, you know, how to just let go of it and, and, and move on. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I think it's important, very important to understand. You know, I think what, one of the reasons that trauma hangs on is it's never been fully acknowledged. It's never been mourned, the mourning that goes with trauma. And, and the, the sense, and again, the sense of being, um, you know, being the pathologizing that goes on around trauma. Um, and understanding that, you know, the, the ingested guilt, blame, and shame that's there. That the sense that somebody is fundamentally broken and screwed up. Whatever, whatever the message that's coming from the, um, the, the abuser, the traumatizer, the system, the systemic dynamics that are there, being you know, being really alive to that and acknowledging. I think, I think that's one of the things that we're seeing is that there's been so much that hasn't been acknowledged. People haven't been heard. And now they, they you know, and, 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 that's, and, and when it's not fully acknowledged, it's not fully brought to light, it's easily manipulated. Um, and then simply coming, you know, I, I, um, really this sense of beginning to learn, lean into, when you're beginning to lean into the physical experience of trauma, you're beginning to unhook from the narratives, whatever the narratives might be. And a lot of those, again, those, those narratives are self-blaming, something of inherent fundamental screwed up about the, the, the trauma victim that gets ingested. 
beginning to unhook from narratives, whatever they might be. And then there's this sense of, you know, a coming back to being able to take in the trauma, realize it, accept, actually come to accept it. And think, oh yeah, this has been my process, my process. Um, and I would say that the, uh, the, the process, that, the steps that I was just outlining from Franz Dahl and from you know, in, in trauma therapies like polyvagal theory, they really help us do that, to unhook from the narratives. And to come, you know, and, and, and come back together again, to, to, to bring, you know, to overcome, to heal that split in us. So we're no longer, we're no longer the, you know, the victim. We're no longer just hopelessly broken. But I think it's really important for the voices of trauma victims to be heard and understood starting there that has to be yeah thank you thank you chuck uh for uh your talk today um if you have time to linger a little bit maybe there might be some more questions but here at jacoji uh we're we're going to end the program and zoom can stay on and and a little more can continue if that's okay um uh, what I, I appreciate, one of the last things you said is that it's important to have these intentions to support what is wholesome. And um, so uh, what I'd like to do is ask all of you to support what is wholesome and, and as you already do. And please, uh, if you can make an offering and help support Jacoji, please do that. So this kind of thing can continue in strong ways. And it also, but also give to other things in, in your life as you already do. It's, a, it's really a time to uh, share resources that we have um, when it's the right time to share resources. It, you know, it's, it's really nice and sweet to be able to do that. And I speak that not just for Jacoji, but just for other things that we have passions and interests and cares about. So um, uh, yeah, uh, check our uh, website. Uh, thank you, Nico, for maintaining it well and, and keeping the links going and see what else we're up to. And so thank you so much. And we'll end with the closing gatha. May our intentions equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma days are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to be coming. So yeah, I I I I'll be willing to stay around for some questions if if people have them. Okay, good. Thank you. Be safe. Um, I had a question. Yeah. 
you talked about uh, letting go and developing the muscle uh, to let go. Uh, could you say a bit about attachment? And and my understanding is that letting go involves uh, disidentification. So does that mean attachment involves identification? And do people, and just like you said, you could develop muscle to let go. Does that mean developing the ability to disidentify yourself with the thing? And also, uh, do people have different capacities of identification as in like, do people get more attached as compared to other people? And what are the causes of that? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we all have our own patterns of attachment. Um, and really understanding the, that our, our, you know, there, there are broad patterns of attachment or conditioning patterns, but they're unique to each one of us, given our history. I think it's a matter of investigating the attachment, what the attachment is to. Um, I do think that there is a strong attachment to identity, to self-identity. This is who I am. Uh, and that's a very strong one. And that's, and that's even when there is a you know, so-called a weak sense of self, because there's, um, when there's a false self that's created around a weak sense of self, um, that, can be, that can be very tenaciously clung to, because there's nothing else than that story or the stories around somebody. Um, you know, so beginning to investigate what's behind the attachment, what fears are there, or what, what emotions are there? Is there fear? And fear of what? Um, you know, and just keep going back, keep going back. And notice when there's, um, I like to, you know, I, I turn things around a little bit and, you know, noticing the reaction to the reaction, and maybe the reaction to the reaction to the reaction. There's an echo effect. So there's something happens, and there's a re, there's the condition reaction. And then there's a condition reaction to that, and there may be one to that. But just um, you know, beginning to investigate that, to be able to you know, we go so we you know to be able to allow awareness to move from one to the other, and we begin to see what's actually behind our the attachment that's there, and to understand it, that's particular to us. To really and to and to really notice that uh, when, when when the judgment starts to kick in around so that's a reaction to the reaction but noticing that and turning into judgment um, because the judging maybe doesn't maybe is is really the judging doesn't really want us to let go of the attachment because it just keeps us stuck in that process but investigate just you know just check in, just look into it. Notice what feelings there, you know, I, sometimes I, I recommend that, you know, when, we, when, you're, when there are this, these emotional waves are, are coursing through the being, being able to maybe play it back, try to go back to the earliest that you can remember this, experiencing this, see where that takes you. And just being open in the process, just open exploration. Curious, gener curious, uh, curiosity, gentle curiosity. That's the spirit.
thank you. Just thank you very much. Uh, uh, I have a question. You mentioned about trauma of the abused. Uh, there's also trauma in the abusers that leads them to do that abuse. I mean, we see it all the time, the policeman who, you know, shoot someone seven times in the back. I wonder what went on in their life that brought them to that point. Uh, you know, the people that w wave these flags and don't listen to facts, they have a lot of grievances also, you know, uh, they feel put down, they feel condescended to. Uh, so I don't, I mean, is there any work, I was going to ask you, do you know of any work that's being done, frankly, to talking to the abused side and understanding their grievances and showing some understanding and compassion to them so this not, not, you know, starts to loosen up somehow? Because otherwise I don't see, if you only talk to one side or the other side, it just, there's still these two sides. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna roam a little bit in this answer. I, it takes me back to my first insight meditation retreat a few years ago, and at the end of the retreat, when we had our kumbaya moments, and um, and it was it was at the start of the um, you know on the way you know everybody's traveling to the retreat. That's when the Parkland shootings happened down in Florida, and um, and this was in 2000. Um, 18, I think, and there's still a lot of rawness around the election. And, and, and one of the teachers says, you know, um, you know, the sense of not being, you know, experiencing the sense of not being heard. And I said, and I, and I, and I said, well, maybe we can understand the other side and their sense of not being heard. Um, I do think that's huge in all this. They're not being heard, and this is the way it's coming out. Uh, there, there, are, um, there, are, there are efforts, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are. I know of one because I'm involved with it, in working with domestic violence offenders. And um, it's court-ordered, but not all of them are there under court order. And it's um, being able to really work with them in a compassionate way to help them understand how they came to be, the extent of their trauma. Because they don't, you know, they, they don't understand trauma themselves. They know the pain of it, but they really don't understand it. So helping them to understand that trauma and to really, and really, helping them do that in a very non-judgmental way. And this practice, it, it really, it's like going back to the well for me. It's, it, it's regenerative because it really helps keep that alive in me when the judgment is there. Because, you know, I look back at my own self. I look at all, you know, you know all of my own screwed upness, if you will. And, and having, you know, and I, you know the p compassion starts there. And being able to then understand the suffering of others without fixed views, without judgment. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I would like to see more done with this. You know, I'd like to see more done with police. I really would. I'd love the opportunity to work with police. Um, I live 30 miles from Kenosha. And um, it's, um, you know, it's just, it's, you know, to begin, I think, I think Buddhism has, it, it can, it can, it, I think it has the glue or the power to, to heal the divide. I just do. And, you know, and, and I really encourage us to really be alive to that potential. Hi, um, uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, I think this is uh, really useful. Um, and uh, like, uh, so I'm a beginner, uh, like I've been practicing for a couple of years. I've been sitting for a couple of years. Um, and uh, the instruction to allow thoughts to come come up and uh, go away freely, um, that, uh, that instruction basically like, uh, uh, feels uh, a little bit uh, uh, difficult for me to f follow in the sense like okay I, in my experience what I re what I see is like okay I'm getting caught up in thought uh, and then I realize after a while okay and then then I'm just sitting continue to sit right like uh, that, that's my experience uh, I cannot really see the thought coming up and then letting go uh, letting it go uh, that doesn't happen um, so um, so so does this change with as awareness develops or like uh, that's one question and the other thing is like uh, when you talk about the rain method right like uh, recognizing uh, allowing um, intimate uh, inquiry and uh, uh, like no self so for me to apply that like or even for any any beginner right like uh, i see like i can only recognize that i'm caught up in thought and i'm back right uh, and after that okay uh, how do I do allowing uh, or, or how do I uh, like uh, this inquiry part or uh, recognizing that there is no self in this, right? This, this whole thing, uh, all I can do is just continue to sit uh, that I'm back and I'm looking at the wall uh, and then the next thought, next thought catches me up. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's enough. Um, so turning into, the, you know, um, Somebody was asking me recently about their, they have a really strong experience of monkey mind. And uh, I said, just simply to turn into it. Turn into it. Notice how that monkey mind feels. Um, just notice the experience in the being. And so, um, you know, um, so when, it, when there's thoughts, when there's no matter the thought pattern, um, just notice what the energy of the thinking is. How does that feel in the being? Okay. And then um, you can, you know, you can begin to notice two things with this. When you begin to notice the energy of the thinking. One is, is what happens when awareness is simply brought to it? When awareness is brought to the thinking and feeling the energy of it. Notice what the response of the system is. It's, you know, it, very often just when awareness is brought to something, the ease, the grip of the thinking or whatever is there begins to ease. Okay. And then noticing that easing, getting familiar with that easing. Noticing what that easing feels like in the body. 
Notice the difference between the energy of the, of the thinking and the easing. Okay. This is in a very similar dynamic, you know, just noticing there's this thinking and okay. And then, and if, and if you can, then noticing the turning and coming back, if you, if you simply turn, you're noticing the energy of the thinking and the turning and coming back and noticing the coming back for however long you're back, so to speak. Notice what I notice in me is there's, there's a tension around the thinking. And then the coming back or noticing the aware, you know, bringing awareness to you or simply coming back, the awareness is with it either way, is that easing that comes back. There's an easing and an opening. Getting to know that because, you know, and then because you've done two things, you've cultivated, you know, you're cultivating that strength of awareness, that muscle of awareness, just a little bit each time. You're also cultivating insight, the seeing into, just little glimpses. And, um, and it's interrupting, it's interrupting whatever the thought pattern is. It's interrupting the grip of the thought pattern. It may come back, but it, it gets interrupted. And coming back over and over and over, being very patient. This is a highly repetitive practice. So patience and kindness to ourselves is very, very important. You know, the old, the old ways of gauging and judging, you know, really beginning to work with those, turning into those and beginning to unhook from them too. To really, you know, the old gauges and, and standards and everything, they don't apply here. Okay. Hey Chuck. Joe, Joe Seeholzer. Hey, hey Joe. Hey. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Good. Okay. So um, I was going to say this earlier, and then somebody else brought up, well, you know, what about the trauma of the people who are doing the trauma? And uh, what, what I, before that, I had thought of like males, maybe especially white males, but one of the things. Um, We've been traumatized in, in we've been we've been given the delusion that um, we've been given a false definition of maturity and a false definition of confidence. And when we're true when life truly asks us to be confident and mature, we've we discover all this infantile stuff that we've never attended to because we've depended on this on this, um, you know, privilege <laughs> or of, of, being, uh, of being given latitude that we didn't really earn or, or at least not, you know what I'm saying? And so, and then, and then in our own little tiny lives, we've had whatever trauma we've had. When, and, and so the, there's this big veiled thing we do of hiding all that, that immaturity and that infantileness and and depending on this faux definition of maturity or adulthood or confidence and now it's course crumbling and then we get all desperate and we then we want to put put it back in place and so that's one that's one thing we can work on <laughs> yeah. a, a major thing 
Yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, this practice is all about maturity growing up. Again, again, not the, not our culture's sense of maturity and growing up, but I think a more honest sense of maturity and growing up. Um, and you know, this this practice really does, uh, really, um, I would say demands, you know, it really brings us into where we're not being honest with ourselves and all of our, our uh, made up stuff. Uh, because, you know, we really become alive to it. It's just, just, we're out of sync with things. And um, we're out of sync with each other with life and it's all and it's all you know it's all geared to selling stuff boosting profits maintaining power privilege right yeah our, our sense of confidence and maturity is so intertwined with being given power and and that's where that that's where that which is a completely false definition of genuine maturity, etc. Mm -hmm. It just feels like a lot of people are just having a massive Trump uh, temper tantrum of two year olds at the ages of 60 and 70. And yeah, that's just, that's just what it feels like going on in the society temper tantrums being yeah. encouraged by the collective by the churches, by the TV stations, by the media, by Facebook, etc., etc. So it makes it very hard to, because there's a lot of support around this. I'm not worried about guys like I mean, I'm just speaking as a non, you know, white male. But I'm not worried about people like you who just so ex eloquently expressed, pin the problem. You know, but a lot of people are just not even seeing seeing this and being told that this is the way to be. And then they're getting demonized by CNN or whoever, the left. And we look at the impasse, like, you know, rock and a hard place. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. Listening, I think, listening and um, voice. Voice. Um, when we listen in a different way, a different voice starts to come through. And when we listen to ourselves in a different way, a different voice starts to come out. When we listen to others in a different way, a chance for their voice to really come out. That I think there's going to be, when that voice really starts to come out, there's going to be a lot of with it. And I think it's really important to stay with, stay with it. With kindness, compassion. Thank you, Chuck. Any other final questions, anyone? Randy, no. unmute yourself. Okay. Ah, I think I did it. Um, you, 
and I've heard this, you know, all through my times of with trying to study Buddhism of the, the sense of self. And uh, I don't know if it's a saying of trying to see the transparency of it. And, but there are things in life that our sense of self we develop and they seem to be um, <clears throat> important to develop those. And I'm thinking about parts of my life that, um, you know, the two main things probably in the last 30 years of my life is being a father and being a high school teacher. And the sense of self and developing a, a sense of self around those identities and, and trying to be, um, you know, I've learned from those identities that this works, this doesn't work, da, da, da. but in a sense, it still builds that sense of self or myself around those identities. And only I can, I can think of is in sitting in my Zen practice is that there's still that moment to moment working with those identities that I have to respond to things and somehow trying to be fluid and open in that response. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I guess this, you know, to forget the self, I mean, I can't, for, you, know, the, the, you know, myself has just been tied up with so many things and I'm still that, you know, so I, I don't, yeah. I, I, um, I still have faith in the process of sitting. I think that's one of the few things I've made it. <laughs> but uh, do you have any kind of response to that? <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, um, I, really, I really think that you described it pretty well. It's a very fluid process. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Where, you know, for me, life, for, for me, practice is getting to be Pretty clean and simple. Just being at, just being at, you know, just being here with what's arising and what's falling away. Noticing, okay, yeah, this identity, okay, that's that's what it is for now. Yeah. Okay. And noticing when it's 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 no longer working. It's it's it, if I'm holding on to an identity too long, getting in the way. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, so this, you know, the fluidity of, you know, rising and falling away and, um, it, and just being alive to it and not holding on to anything too, with too strong a grip. Hmm. Okay. And noticing when we do attach, we are clinging or we're pushing away. And you know, you, you'll notice it because the fluidity goes away. <laughs> There's a stuckness. And, you know, and there's this you know, there's suffering. It's plain and simple suffering. Uh, and it's uh, and you, it just, okay, you, be, you can investigate or you can just turn into the grip. Just be with the grip. Because identity is provisional. That's all. You know, it's there. It's not that it shouldn't be there. Because we have to function in this world. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, but... You know, we just a whole. You know, we just learn to just sort of ease the grip. <laughs> you know, and uh, and just smile a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> at ourselves. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
I mean, I've seen people throw their whole lives away because they're paranoid about having any identity. And so, and, 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 and where you're right, Chuck, identities are provisional and they're, they're functional and they're useful, but it's just the, the grip. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Nico, I just, I, I just want to thank you for uh, shepherding me into this with your kindness. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.